Section twenty nine of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume seven, by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Deposition of Richard the Second. Henry the Fourth begins the line of Lancaster, A.D. thirteen ninety nine, by John Lingard. Richard the Second, son of Edward the Black Prince, succeeded his grandfather Edward the Third on the throne of England in thirteen seventy seven, when Richard was but ten years old. During his minority, the government was entrusted to a council of twelve, but for some years it was mainly controlled by Richard's uncles, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster and Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester. War with France, then in progress, entailed great expenditures, which were increased by court extravagance, and at length burdensome taxes led to popular uprisings. These became most serious in the Great Revolt of the Peasants, led by Wat Tyler in 1381. Richard appeared amongst the insurgents and granted them concessions. From this time the king became more active in his government, and in 1386 John of Gaunt withdrew to the continent. About the same time the Duke of Gloucester headed a coalition of the baronial party in opposition to the sovereign. But in 1389 Richard suddenly declared himself of age and gave a check to their designs. For eight years he ruled with moderation as a constitutional monarch. But in 1396, Richard married Isabella, daughter of Charles VI of France, and henceforth seems to have adopted French ideas, and to have made pretensions in the direction of absolutism. He proceeded to arbitrary prosecutions, which led to the violent death of several leading nobles. Richard also quarrelled with Henry, son of John of Gaunt, whom as Duke of Lancaster he succeeded in 1399. The year before, Richard had banished Henry for ten years, fearing him as a possible rival. The history of the remaining months of Richard's reign is crowded with the events which rapidly led to the ending of the direct line of the Plantagenets and the beginning of the line of Lancaster. In Shakespeare's Richard II, the first of his historical plays, the poet, following Hollinshead's chronicle, presents not only a skilful dramatic construction of the recorded incidents of the reign, but also a finely discriminated portrait of Richard's much-debated character as man and monarch. Richard now saw himself triumphant over all his opponents. Even his uncles, through affection or fear, seconded all his measures. He had attained what seems for some time to have been the great object of his policy, he had placed himself above the control of the law. By the grant of a subsidy for life, he was relieved from the necessity of meeting his Parliament with the aid of his committee, the members of which proved the obsequious ministers of his will. He could issue what new ordinances he pleased, and a former declaration by the two houses that he was as free as any of his predecessors was conveniently interpreted to release him from the obligations of those statutes 
which he deemed hostile to the royal prerogative. But he had forfeited all that popularity which he had earned during the last ten years, and the security in which he indulged hurried him on to other acts of despotism, which inevitably led to his ruin. He raised money by forced loans. He compelled the judges to expand the law according to his own prejudices or caprice. He required the former adherents of Gloucester to purchase and repurchase charters of pardon, and, that he might obtain a more plentiful harvest of fines and immersements, put at once seventeen counties out of the protection of the law, under the pretense that they had favoured his enemies. The Duke of Lancaster did not survive the banishment of his son more than three months, and the exile expected to succeed by his attorneys to the ample estates of his father. But Richard now discovered that his banishment, like an outlawry, had rendered him incapable of inheriting property. At a great council, including the Committee of Parliament, it was held that the patents granted both to him and his antagonist were illegal and therefore void, and all the members present were sworn to support that determination. Henry Bowett, who had procured the patent for the Duke of Hereford, was even condemned for that imaginary offence to suffer the punishment of treason, though on account of his character his life was spared on condition that he should abjure the kingdom for ever. This iniquitous proceeding seems to have exhausted the patience of the nation. Henry, on the death of his father, he had assumed the title of Duke of Lancaster, had long been the idol of the people, and the voluntary assemblage of thousands to attend him on his last departure from London might have warned Richard of the approaching danger. The feeling of their own wrongs had awakened among them a spirit of resistance. The new injury offered to their favourite pointed him out to them as their leader. Consultations were held, plans were formed, the dispositions of the great lords were sounded, and the whole nation appeared in a ferment. Yet it was in this moment, so pregnant with danger, that the infatuated monarch determined to leave his kingdom. His cousin and heir, the Earl of March, had been surprised and slain by a party of Irish, and, in his eagerness to revenge the loss of a relation, he despised the advice of his friends, and wilfully shut his eyes to the designs of his enemies. Having appointed his uncle, the Duke of York, regent during his absence, the king assisted at a solemn mass at Windsor, chanted to collect himself, and made his offering. At the door of the church he took wine and spices with his young queen, and lifting her up in his arms, repeatedly kissed her, saying, Adieu, madame, adieu till we meet again. From Windsor, accompanied by several noblemen, he proceeded to Bristol, where the report of plots and conspiracies reached him, and was received with contempt. At Milford Haven he joined his army, and embarking in a fleet of two hundred sail, arrived in a few days in the port of Waterford, his cousin, the Duke of Albemarle, had been ordered to follow with a hundred more, and three weeks were consumed in waiting for that nobleman, whose delay was afterward attributed to a secret understanding with the king's enemies. At length, Richard led his forces from Kilkenny against the Irish. Several of the inferior chiefs hastened barefoot and with halters round their necks to implore his mercy, but MacMurchard, 
spurned the idea of submission, and boasted that he would extirpate the invaders. He dared not indeed meet them in open combat, but it was his policy to flee before them, and draw them into woods and morasses, where they could neither fight with advantage nor procure subsistence. The want of provisions and the clamour of the soldiers compelled the king to give up the pursuit, and to direct his march toward Dublin, and MacMurchard, when he could no longer impede their progress, solicited and obtained a parley with the Earl of Gloucester, the commander of the rear-guard. The chieftain was an athletic man. He came to the conference mounted on a grey charger, which had cost him four hundred head of cattle, and brandished with ease and dexterity a heavy spear in his hand. He seemed willing to become the nominal vassal of the King of England, but refused to submit to any conditions. Richard set a price on his head, proceeded to Dublin, and at the expiration of a fortnight was joined by the Duke of Albemarle with men and provisions. This seasonable supply enabled him to recommence the pursuit of MacMurchard, but while he was thus occupied with objects of inferior interest in Ireland, a revolution had occurred in England which eventually deprived him both of his crown and his life. When the king sailed to Ireland, Henry of Bolingbroke, the new Duke of Lancaster, resided in Paris, where he was hospitably entertained, but at the same time narrowly watched by the French monarch. About Christmas he offered his hand to Marie, one of the daughters of the Duke of Berry. The jealousy of Richard was alarmed. The Earl of Salisbury hastened to Paris to remonstrate against the marriage of a daughter of France with an English traitor and suiting his conduct to his words, the envoy, having accomplished his object, returned without deigning to speak to the exile. While Henry was brooding over these injuries, the late primate or nominal bishop of St Andrews secretly left his house at Cologne, and in the disguise of a friar procured an interview with the Duke at the Hotel de Winchester. The result of their meeting was a determination to return to England during the king's absence. To elude the suspicions of the French ministers, Henry procured permission to visit the Duke of Britannia, and on his arrival at Nantes, hired three small vessels with which he sailed from Vannes to seek his fortune in England. His whole retinue consisted only of the Archbishop, the son of the late Earl of Arundel, fifteen lancers and a few servants. After hovering for some days on the eastern coast, he landed at Ravenspur in Yorkshire, and was immediately joined by the two powerful earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland, before whom, in the White Friars at Doncaster, he declared upon oath that his only object was to recover the honours and estates which had belonged to his father, and bound himself not to advance any claim to the crown. The Duke of York, to whom the king had entrusted the government during his absence, was accurately informed of his motions, and had summoned the retainers of the crown to join the royal standard at St Albans. There is, however, reason to believe that he was not hearty in the cause which it was his duty to support. He must have viewed with pity the unmerited misfortunes of one nephew, and have condemned the violent and thoughtless career of the other. And from the fate of his brother Gloucester, and the cruel and unjust treatment of the only son of his brother, John of Gaunt, he could not draw any very flattering conclusion 
with respect to the stability of his own family. Whether it was from suspicion of his fidelity, or from the disinclination of the chief barons to draw the sword against one, who demanded nothing more than his right, the favourites of Richard became alarmed for their own safety. The Earl of Wiltshire, with Bassey and Green, members of the Committee of Parliament, had been appointed to wait on the young Queen at Wallingford, but they suddenly abandoned their charge, and fled with precipitation to Bristol. York himself followed with the army in the same direction. It might be that, to relieve himself from responsibility, he wished to be in readiness to deliver up the command on the expected arrival of Richard from Ireland, but at the same time he left open the road from Yorkshire to the metropolis, and allowed the adventurer to pursue his object without impediment. Henry was already on his march. The snowball increased as it rolled along, and the small number of forty followers with whom he had landed, swelled by the time he had reached St Albans to sixty thousand men. He was preceded by his messengers and letters, stating not only his own wrongs, but also the grievances of the people, and affirming that the revenue of the kingdom had been let out to farm to the rapacity of Scrope, Bussy and Green, in all those lordships which had been the inheritance of his family, he was received with enthusiasm, in London by a procession of the clergy and people, with addresses of congratulations and presents, and offers of service. His stay in the capital was short. Having flattered the citizens, and confirmed them in their attachment to his person, he turned to the west, and entered Evesham, on the same day on which York reached Berkeley. After an interchange of messages, they met in the church of the castle, and before they separated, the doom of Richard was sealed. That the regent consented to the actual deposition of his nephew does not necessarily follow. He might only have sought his reformation by putting it out of his power to govern amiss. But he betrayed the trust which had been reposed to him, united his force with that of Henry, and commanded Sir Peter Courtney who held the castle of Bristol for the king, to open its gates. That officer, protesting that he acknowledged no authority in the Duke of Lancaster, obeyed the mandate of the regent. The next morning the three fugitives, the Earl of Wiltshire, Bussey and Green, were executed by order of the constable and marshal of the host. The Duke of York remained at Bristol. Henry with his forces proceeded to Chester to secure that city, and all the men of Cheshire, the most devoted adherents of the king. We may now return to Richard in Ireland. It must appear strange, but Henry had been in England a fortnight before the king, in consequence, it was said, of the tempestuous weather, had heard of his landing. The intelligence appears to have provoked indignation as much as alarm. Ha! he exclaimed, fair uncle of Lancaster, God reward your soul! Had I believed you, this man would not have injured me. Thrice have I pardoned him. This is his fourth offence. But he referred the matter to his counsel, and was advised to cross over to England immediately with the ships which had brought the reinforcement under the Duke of Albemarle. That nobleman, however, insidiously, as it was afterwards pretended, diverted him from this intention, the Earl of Salisbury received orders to sail immediately with his own retainers, a body of one hundred men, 
and has summoned to the royal standard the natives of Wales. Richard promised to follow in the fleet from Waterford in the course of six days. The Earl obeyed. The men of Wales and Cheshire answered the call, and a gallant host collected at Conway. But Richard appeared not according to his promise. Distressing reports were circulated among the troops, and the royalists, having waited for him almost a fortnight, disbanded in spite of the fears and entreaties of their commander. At last, on the eighteenth day, the king arrived in Milford Haven, with the dukes of Albemarle, Exeter and Surrey, the Earl of Worcester, the bishops of London, Lincoln and Carlisle, and several thousands of the troops who had accompanied him to Ireland. With such a force had it been faithful, he might have made a stand against his antagonist, but on the second morning when he arose, he observed from his window that the greater part had disappeared. A council was immediately summoned, and a proposal made that the king should flee by sea to Bordeaux. But the Duke of Exeter objected that to quit the kingdom in such circumstances was to abdicate the throne. Let them proceed to the army at Conway. There they might bid defiance to the enemy, or at all events, as the sea would still be open, might then set sail to Guienne. His opinion prevailed, and at nightfall the king, in the disguise of a Franciscan friar, his two brothers of Exeter and Surrey, the Earl of Gloucester, the Bishop of Carlisle, Sir Stephen Scrope and Sir William Ferriby, with eight others, stole away from the army, and directed their route toward Conway. Their flight was soon known. The royal treasure which Richard left behind him was plundered. Albemarle, Worcester, and most of the leaders hastened to pay their court to Henry. The rest attempted in small bodies to make their way to their own counties, but were in most instances plundered and ill-treated by the Welsh. The royal party, with some difficulty, but without any accident, reached Conway, where, to their utter disappointment, instead of a numerous force, they found only the Earl of Salisbury with a hundred men. In this emergency the king's brothers undertook to visit Henry at Chester, and to sound his intentions, and during their absence Richard, with the Earl of Salisbury, examined the castles of Beaumaris and Carnarvon. But finding them without garrisons or provisions, the disconsolate wanderers returned to their former quarters. When the two dukes were admitted into the presence of Henry, they bent the knee and acquainted him with their message from the king. He took little notice of Surrey, whom he afterward confined in the castle, but leading Exeter aside, spoke with him in private, and gave him, instead of the heart, the king's livery, his own badge of the rose. But no entreaties could induce him to allow them to return. Exeter was observed to drop a tear, when the Duke of Albemarle said to him tauntingly, "'Fair cousin, be not angry. If it please God, things shall go well.' The immediate object of Henry was to secure the royal person. He was gratified to learn from the envoys the place of Richard's retreat, and detained them at Chester, that the king, instead of making his escape, might await their return. His first care was to take possession of the treasure which the king had deposited in the strong castle of Holt. His next, to dispatch the Earl of Northumberland at the head of four hundred men-at-arms and a thousand archers to Conway, with instructions not to display his force, 
lest the king should put to sea but by artful speeches and promises to draw him out of the fortress and then make him prisoner the earl took possession in his journey of the castles of flint and rutland and a few miles beyond the latter placing his men in concealment under a rock rode forward with only five attendants to conway he was readily admitted and to the king's anxious inquiries about his brothers replied that he had left them well at chester and had brought a letter from the duke of exeter in it that nobleman said or rather was made to say that full credit might be given to the offers of the bearer these offers were that richard should promise to govern and judge his people by law that the dukes of exeter and surrey the earl of salisbury the bishop of carlisle and Magdalen, the king's chaplain should submit to a trial in parliament on the charge of having advised the assassination of gloucester that henry should be made grand justiciary of the kingdom as his ancestors had been for a hundred years and that on the concession of these terms the duke should come to flint ask the king's pardon on his knees and accompany or follow him to london richard consulted his friends apart he expressed his approbation of the articles but bade them secretly be assured that no consideration should induce him to abandon them on their trial and that he would grasp the first opportunity of being revenged on his and their enemies for there were some among them whom he would flay alive whom he would never spare for all the gold in the land northumberland was then sworn to the observance of the conditions he took his oath on the host and like judas says the writer perjured himself on the body of our lord as northumberland departed to make arrangements for the interview at flint the king said to him i rely my lord on your faith remember your oath and the god who heard it soon afterward he followed with his friends and their servants to the number of twenty-two they came to a steep declivity to the left of which was the sea and on the right a lofty rock overhanging the road the king dismounted and was descending on foot when he suddenly exclaimed i am betrayed god of paradise assist me do you not see banners and pennons in the valley northumberland with eleven others met them at the moment and affected to be ignorant of the circumstance earl of northumberland said the king if i thought you capable of betraying me it is not too late to return you cannot return the earl replied seizing the king's bridle i have promised to conduct you to the duke of lancaster by this time he was joined by a hundred lancers and two hundred archers on horseback and richard seeing it impossible to escape exclaimed may the god on whom you laid your hand reward you and your accomplices at the last day and then turning to his friends added we are betrayed but remember that our lord was also sold and delivered into the hands of his enemies they dined at rudland and reached flint in the evening the king as soon as he was left with his friends abandoned himself to the reflections which his melancholy situation inspired he frequently upbraided himself with his past indulgence to his present opponent fool that i was he exclaimed thrice did i save the life of this henry of lancaster once my dear uncle his father on whom the lord have mercy 
would have put him to death for his treason and villainy. God of paradise, I rode all night to save him, and his father delivered him to me, to do with him as I pleased. How true is the saying that we have no greater enemy than the man whom we have preserved from the gallows. Another time he drew his sword on me, in the chamber of the queen, on whom God have mercy. He was also the accomplice of the Duke of Gloucester and the Earl of Arundel. He consented to my murder, to that of his father, and all of my counsel. By St. John I forgave him all, nor would I believe his father, who more than once pronounced him deserving of death. The unfortunate king rose after a sleepless night, heard mass, and ascended the tower to watch the arrival of his opponent. At length he saw the army, amounting to eighty thousand men, winding along the beach till it reached the castle and surrounded it from sea to sea. He shuddered and wept, and cursed the Earl of Northumberland, but was called down by the arrival of Archbishop Arundel, the Duke of Albemarle, and the Earl of Worcester. They knelt to Richard, who, drawing the prelate apart, held a long conversation with him. After their departure he again mounted the tower, and surveying the host of his enemies, exclaimed, "'Good Lord God, I commend myself into thy holy keeping, and cry thee mercy, that thou wouldst pardon all my sins. If they put me to death, I will take it patiently, as thou didst for us all.' Northumberland had ordered dinner, and the Earl of Salisbury, the bishop and the two knights, Sir Stephen Scrope and Sir William Ferriby, sat with the king at the same table by his order, for since they were all companions in misfortune, he would allow no distinction among them. While he was eating, unknown persons entered the hall, insulting him with sarcasms and threats. As soon as he rose, he was summoned into the court to receive the Duke of Lancaster. Henry came forward in complete armour, with the exception of his helmet. As soon as he saw the king, he bent his knee, and advancing a few paces, he repeated his obeisance with his cap in his hand. "'Fair cousin of Lancaster,' said Richard, uncovering himself, "'you are right welcome.' "'My lord,' answered the duke, "'I am come before my time, but I will show you the reason. "'Your people complain that for the space of twenty or two-and-twenty years "'you have ruled them rigorously, but if it please God, "'I will help you to govern better.' The king replied, Fair cousin, since it pleaseth you, it pleaseth us well. Henry then addressed himself successively to the bishop and to the knights, but refused to notice the earl. The king's horses were immediately ordered, and two lean and miserable animals were brought out, on which Richard and Salisbury mounted, and amid the flourish of trumpets and shouts of triumph followed the duke into Chester. At Chester writs were issued in the king's name for the meeting of Parliament and the preservation of the peace. Henry dismissed the greater part of his army, and prepared to conduct his prisoner to the capital. At Lichfield Richard seized a favourable moment to let himself down from his window, but was retaken in the garden, and from that moment was constantly guarded by ten or twelve armed men. In the neighbourhood of London they separated. Henry, accompanied by the mayor and principal citizens, proceeded to St. Paul's, 
prayed before the high altar and wept a few minutes over the tomb of his father. The king was sent to Westminster and thence on the following day to the tower and as he went along was greeted with curses and the appellation of the bastard, a word of ominous import and prophetic of his approaching degradation. When the duke first landed in England he had sworn on the Gospels that his only object was to vindicate his right to the honours and possessions of the House of Lancaster. If this was the truth, his ambition had grown with his good fortune. He now aspired to exchange the coronet of a duke for the crown of a king. Can we believe that he would meet with opposition from his associates, the Percy family? Yet so we are assured. They, however, by their perfidy, had given themselves a master. Their retainers had been already dismissed, and the friends of Richard abhorred them as the worst of traitors. They had therefore no resource but to submit, and to second the design of Lancaster. After several consultations, it was resolved to combine a solemn renunciation of the royal authority on the part of Richard, with an act of deposition on the part of the two Houses of Parliament, in the hope that those whose scruples should not be satisfied with the one might acquiesce in the other. To obtain the first, the royal captive was assailed with promises and threats. Generally he abandoned himself to lamentation and despair. Occasionally he exerted that spirit which he had formerly displayed. "'Why am I thus guarded?' he asked one day. "'Am I your king or your prisoner?' "'You are my king, sir,' replied the duke with coolness. "'But the council of your realm has thought proper to place a guard about you. On the day before the meeting of Parliament, a deputation of prelates, barons, knights and lawyers waited on the captive in the tower, and reminded him that in the castle of Conway, while he was perfectly his own master, he had promised to resign the crown on account of his own incompetency to govern. On his reply that he was ready to perform his promise, a paper was given to him to read in which he was made to absolve all his subjects from their fealty and allegiance, to renounce of his own accord all kingly authority, to acknowledge himself incapable of reigning and worthy for his past demerits to be deposed, and to swear by the holy gospels that he would never act, nor, as far as in him lay, suffer any other person to act in opposition to this resignation. He then added, as from himself, that if it were in his power to name his successor, he would choose his cousin of Lancaster, who was present, and to whom he gave his ring, which he took from his own finger. Such is the account of this transaction, inserted by the order of Henry in the rolls of Parliament, an account the accuracy of which is liable to strong suspicion. It is difficult to believe that Richard had so much command over his feelings as to behave with that cheerfulness which is repeatedly noticed in the record, and the assertion that he had promised to resign the crown when he saw Northumberland in the castle of Conway is not only contradictory to the statement of the two eyewitnesses, but also in itself highly improbable. From the fate of Edward the Second, with which he had so often been threatened, he must have known that it was better to flee to his transmarine dominions, which were still open to him, 
than to resign his crown and remain a prisoner in the custody of his successor. The next day the two houses met and made a great concourse of people in Westminster Hall. The Duke occupied his usual seat near the throne, which was empty and covered with cloth of gold. The resignation of the King was read. Each member, standing in his place, signified his acceptance of it aloud, and the people, with repeated shouts, expressed their approbation. Henry now proceeded to the second part of his plan, the act of deposition. For this purpose the coronation oath was first read. Thirty-three articles of impeachment followed, in which it was contended that Richard had violated that oath, and thence it was concluded that he had, by his misconduct, forfeited his title to the throne. Of the articles, those which bear the hardest on the king are the part which he was supposed to have had in the death of the Duke of Gloucester, his revocation of the pardons formerly granted to that prince and his adherents, and his despotic conduct since the dissolution of Parliament. Of the remainder, some are frivolous, many might, with equal reason, have been objected to each of his predecessors, and the others rest on the unsupported assertion of men whose interest it was to paint him in the blackest colours. No opposition had been anticipated, nor is any mentioned on the rolls, but we are told that the Bishop of Carlisle, to the astonishment of the Lancastrians, rose and demanded for Richard what ought not to be refused to the meanest criminal, the right of being confronted with his accusers, and for Parliament what it might justly claim, the opportunity of learning from the King's own mouth, whether the resignation of the crown, which had been attributed to him, were his own spontaneous act. If Merck's actually made such a speech, he must have stood alone. No one was found to second it. The House voted the deposition of Richard, and eight commissioners, assenting a tribunal erected before the throne, pronounced him degraded from the state and authority of king, on the ground that he notoriously deserved such punishment, and had acknowledged it under his hand and seal on the preceding day. Sir William Thurnig, Chief Justice, was appointed to notify the sentence to the captive, who meekly replied that he looked not after the royal authority, but hoped his cousin would be good lord to him. The rightful possessor was now removed from the throne. But supposing it to be vacant, what pretensions could Henry of Lancaster advance to it? By the law of succession it belonged to the descendants of Lionel, the third son of Edward III, and their claim, it is said, had been formally recognised in Parliament. All waited in anxious suspense, till the Duke, rising from his seat, and forming with great solemnity the sign of the cross on his forehead and breast, pronounced the following words, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I, Henry of Lancaster, challenge this realm of England, and the crown, with all the members and appurtenances, as that I am descended by right line of blood, coming from the good Lord, King Henry the Third, and through that right, that God of his grace, hath sent me with help of my kin and of my friends to recover it. The which realm was in point to be undone for default of governance and undoing of good laws. 
in these extraordinary terms did lancaster advance his pretensions artfully intermixing an undefined claim of inheritance with those of conquest and expediency and rather hinting at each than insisting on either but however difficult it might be to understand the grand the object of his challenge was perfectly intelligible both houses admitted it unanimously and as a confirmation henry produced the ring and seal which richard had previously delivered to him the archbishop of canterbury now took him by the hand and led him to the throne he knelt for a few minutes in prayer on the steps arose and was seated in it by the two archbishops as soon as the acclamations had subsided the primate stepping forward made a short harangue in which he undertook to prove that a monarch in the vigour of manhood was a blessing a young and inexperienced prince was a curse to a people at the conclusion the king rose sirs said he i thank god and you spiritual and temporal and all estates of the land and do you to wit it is not my will that no man think that by way of conquest i would disinherit any man of his heritage franchises or other rights that him ought to have nor put him out of that that he has and has had by the good laws and customs of the realm except those persons that have been against the good purpose and the common profit of the realm with the authority of richard had expired that of the parliament and of the royal officers henry immediately summoned the same parliament to meet again in six days appointed new officers of the crown and as soon as he had received their oaths retired in state to the royal apartments thus ended this eventful day with the deposition of richard of bordeaux and the succession of his cousin henry of bolingbroke end of section twenty nine read by florence russell